Welcome to the Talking Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Will Cheshire. And in this podcast, I speak with impact-driven founders and share their real-time stories about how their solution has a positive impact on society. This is a show for founders, investors, and all individuals looking for some positivity and optimism as you hear from people working hard to help better our society and our planet. You can expect to learn about some awesome new products and services in this show that will bring you more hope in our quest to solve some of society's biggest issues. Let's dive in to this week's episode of the Talking Solutions Podcast. In this episode of the podcast, I'm chatting with Dave Blimmon, the founder and managing director of Cottonwood VC. Cottonwood VC is a deep tech venture capital fund that invests in patent-based hard science and deep tech startups in the Southwest region of the US and in Northern Europe. This includes investments in the health sciences, climate tech, advanced manufacturing and robotics, and nanotechnology sectors, amongst others, with companies that have IPO'd in their portfolio, like Sarcos Robotics, Respira Therapeutics, Circular Geno, and Excision. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dave, as it was an opportunity to explore the deep tech world and the impact-driven solutions that they are providing to disrupt industries and change the world in a positive manner. So let's jump into this episode of the Talking Solutions Podcast. And Dave, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a, it's a pleasure to have you on here. Yeah, Will, thanks for uh, inviting me to join you. I look forward to it. Yeah, and Dave, go ahead and just kind of start us off, if you will, with what exactly Cottonwood VC does and, and why it's such a great solution for what y'all are doing. Yeah, so Cottonwood, uh, just quickly, my background, I got involved in the venture business and Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. We did early stage kind of IT-focused investments in the region. And I sold that and um, moved here to Santa Fe. Um, my wife is from here, so we kind of she wanted to get closer to her family. But also what's here is uh, two national labs and, and regionally uh, billions in research between Texas, and Colorado, Arizona, Utah, Oklahoma. Uh, and, you know, up in Colorado, you got National Renewable Energy Lab. And so, you know, my p passion really has always been around sort of early stage, founding stage, helping entrepreneurs get their companies started. And in this region in particular, um, we're really focused on the hard sciences. So we're focused on chemistry and materials, energy, uh, robotics, even health sciences. So we look for uh, technologies often at the labs or just recently uh, left the university setting or in some cases even licensing or helping an entrepreneur license technology out of, out of a university setting to help fund that first prototype or that first proof of concept. So in some cases that might exist and then we're funding the next generation. In some cases we're helping demonstrate from the very beginning uh, the promise of the technology. And so we focus on these, what I call off the curve innovations. We look for an approach to solving a problem. Again, kind of hard science, science related, um, that comes at the problem in a whole new way. Uh, there's no prior art as they would uh, describe it in the patent world. So virtually no prior art, no one's really done this before, but uh, someone had an epiphany about, hey, maybe this would work if you will. And uh, generally in our due diligence, we hear quite often, oh, that won't work. And, um, and surprising to me, even 100% of the time, times it has worked. And so I always thought I was taking a lot of technology risk, getting involved in these kind of off the curve, uh, disruptive ideas, even before a proof of concept or prototype might be built. 
Um, but what I've learned over time, it's not really the technology risk. Uh, the f- people that come up with these ideas have been in their uh, careers for decades. Uh, it's really grounded in terms of the ideas that they have. And the challenge is less about uh, the uh, technology risk, if you will. It's more about what I call market entry risk, which is the ability to just to continue to raise capital, advance uh, you know the progress of the company towards commercialization. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned a few things I got a questions about, so that's why we're doing this show, right? And so, Dave, on top of that, one thing that first and foremost, just to kind of go back to your background a little bit and, and what you were doing and, and why deep tech and things of that nature as well, what is it about these kind of off-the-curve technologies that you talked about in the deep tech that really kind of fascinates you and, and got you more interested to, to open up Cottonwood VC and focus on these deep techs instead of kind of focusing on, uh, you know, what is kind of, mm, I guess, mainstream, for lack of a better word, with a lot of like SaaS products and, and consumer facing. I've always been, even when I was doing the, the venture uh, investing in the Southeast, um, it was at the early days of the Internet. Um, and so even then you could get patents on software, you know, kind of new business models uh, enabled by the Internet. So I've always liked investing where there was a bit of protection on the idea because especially when you're uh, in what I'll call these outer resource areas. So what we focus on is uh, Cottonwood. And I think where we have unique expertise is starting in the Southeast, now in the Southwest. We also have an office in Europe and a partner there. And these are all regions that are rich in innovation, but uh, what I'll call poor and many of the other resources that you need to be successful. Predominantly, the ability to raise capital. There's very little resident capital in these regions to help support the companies. Uh, Quite often, there's a lack of experienced management that's had a history of starting and exiting companies. And quite often, the customers aren't here. So what is here is disruptive innovation, which I've uh, been able to identify uh, repeatedly over, you know, Cottonwood, it's we're into like uh, year 12 and consistently two or three new investments a year, uh, all in this kind of disruptive area. But when you're in these regions in particular, it's hard to win the races that are largely based on just uh, how fast can you go. And so if you're in California, you know, with these SaaS ideas and a few other pockets of venture and experience management, you can take an idea and you can ramp it up pretty quickly. And so I think, you know, what you hear quite often is it's low cap, if you will, is sort of the buzzword for software. And it's low cap to start, but it's not low cap to win. You have to win, you really have to stay ahead of the competition. You have to grow quickly grab customers quickly and try to you know protect your turf through execution because you really can't protect it through patents per se for the most part in today's uh, patent world. And so when you're outside those regions, the regions that we focus on, you need a little more time to execute because it takes longer to raise money. It takes longer to build the management team. It takes a little bit longer, I think, quite often to uh, attract and uh, engage the customers. Um, and so by having these sort of disruptive ideas with strong patent protection, you still have to execute, but you feel like you've got a protected turf um, to start with and that you can be methodical and thoughtful and, uh, and not just try to raise as much money as you can as fast as you can and try to stay ahead of the next guy because you got something 
that can't be duplicated in a boot camp over the weekend and can't be just ramped up uh, through people. Um, you really have to be able to prove the technology works. And that actually does take time, um, has to meet performance specs that the customers are expecting it uh, in terms of uh, qualification testing and uh, reliability testing, all these things that uh, take longer. But if you can create a new industry standard and really uh, introduce a whole new approach to a large market, um, it's fun to do. And it's fun to see these companies emerge as category leaders over time and really changing the way different industries operate. Yeah, absolutely. So within that, you said mentioned earlier a little bit as well that the biggest risk wasn't the technology itself, the deep tech, kind of like what you thought. It was kind of market entry and things of that nature. And then, you know, you just kind of got done explaining a little bit about being methodical in these processes and that these, you know, you had mentioned too that the people founding these companies tend to be uh, more seasoned professionals, if you will, within their industry and their expertise as well. So I was wondering then if you could just expand a little bit more on like, what are some of those hard key challenges that you and the team really face to kind of help these companies kind of get through that are kind of significantly different than those consumer facing ones where it's, hey, let's raise a lot of money. But for you guys, it's being methodical and maybe being more thoughtful in the choices that you're kind of taking within the key decisions that kind of pop up. Yeah, well, so I think, you know, what I've learned over time is, again, you have to be able to continue to raise money, um, especially because these are more capital intensive. And the key to that is, uh, proving that the technology has promise and a commercial pathway. But equally important, probably maybe even more important, is you got to get a business person on the team early. And so there's a tendency, because these are all hard tech kinds of companies, they're generally started by PhD scientists in whatever discipline uh, might be relevant to the, to the technology. And they know how to build the products. As I mentioned, the technology risk is a lot less than I thought it would be and in, 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 in uh, it really hasn't emerged as the primary risk. And so um, by getting a business person in early, though, it gives you the ability to continue to raise capital because the next rounds of capital want to know who's going to run the company. And it's generally not the PhD scientists that they're looking. I mean, it can be, you know, every situation's different, but I would say on average, you need to have business people on the team early to will open doors to the customers, for example. And almost every one of our companies, next rounds of funding has come from the corporate venture community. So you, you open the doors to the customers. They don't want to buy it yet because it's still got a fair amount of technology risk. But they do want to support it because they can see the impact on their business over time if the technology does work. And all, pretty much every large corporation today has a venture group. Partly because, to your earlier point, the venture community has largely shifted the software. But if you're a real product company, you still need new ideas to improve and introduce new capabilities into the market. And most large corporations have reduced their own internal research and development. So they're much more than they ever have been dependent on external sources of innovation. So we can help open those doors, but they ultimately want to talk to the company. So they'll go through the technical diligence. And you got the technical people there. And so that always goes pretty well. But then how do you transition the conversation to a business relationship? And we can help with that, but we're not at the company full time. So we really can't close the deal. You need somebody there that's full time that they are counting on to help execute. 
whether it's corporate venture or whether it's another venture firm, you need those business people on the team early. And there's a tendency, um, you know, I've heard people say, well, why have a business person on the team when you don't have anything to sell yet? Um, because the product's still in development. Um, but you do have something to sell. You have something to sell, which is the, you know, the market impact of this technology and you have to continue to raise money and the technical people themselves generally can't do that all by themselves. So getting that business person on early has been a key to success for us. Yeah, really kind of helping them aid on that kind of allow them to kind of think of it more as a business immediately instead of just kind of that product perspective then for what you, for what you will. So well, let me just before you jump to the next question, one of the quick points that I think is relevant here, because the question is always, well, how do you do that? Because, you know, and so the general model you see even on software, even in California, is initial rounds are funded with, say, 250 or 500,000 under this kind of capital light kind of approach. And and so with software with 250 or 500,000, you can throw up a website and you can start to show functionality. For a hard tech deal, you really can't get very far with 250 or 500,000. And more importantly, you really can't recruit a key business person to the team with only 250 or 500,000. And so what we do differently, I think, uh, even at the early founding seed stage is we put in two to two million on average, and we do initial seed rounds of two to four million, depending on whether there might be a syndicate partner. And by having two to four million, now you can recruit a business person. And so that's a fundamental, I would say, difference in our approach that allows us to get this business person on early um, on into these promising companies. And what's the difference on timelines on that front? You mentioned constantly needing to fundraise and things like that. Like, I mean, obviously it's different for every situation in every company, but but how often are you trying to kind of fundraise and raise more of that money? Well, in general, I think this is true generally in the venture uh, industry, but certainly true for us is every round of funding, you're planning on 18 to 24 months of runway. And so you have about 12 months to execute on hitting miles, technical milestones before you start raising the next round of funding. And then, of course, while you're raising the next round of funding, you want to be continuing to hit, you know, customer commitments, technical milestones, et cetera, so that you have the next round of funding coming in generally about 18, every 18 months. Time to take a break for my book recommendation of the week. This week, I want to focus on the book, The Future of Feeling, Building Empathy in a Tech-Obsessed World by Caitlin Phillips. It's an insightful exploration of what social media, AI, robot technology, and the digital world are doing to our relationships with each other and with ourselves. The author, Caitlin Phillips, shares her own personal stories, as well as those of doctors, entrepreneurs, journalists, teachers, and scientists, among others, about moving innovation and technology forward without succumbing to isolation. I found this book to be really interesting and pose questions that challenge you to think and make you reconsider your efforts to maintain social interactions. This is especially true in a day and age where more people are suffering from social anxiety than ever before. This book is for anyone interested in how our brains work, how they're subtly being rewired to work differently, and what that ultimately means for us as humans. So, Let's jump back in to our conversation with Dave Levin of Cottonwood, BC. 
So then what are the specific kind of sectors that you guys kind of focus in? I mean, you, you guys talked about some of this technology and, and some of the stuff that's kind of a little bit more um, advanced, if you will, and trying to really make a lot of disruption and impact on that will. So what types of sectors specifically are you looking at in the southwest region of, of the U.S. and then in the northeast parts of Europe? Yeah, well, so we're pretty much uh, technology and industry agnostic. And so what I found through my career is you can kind of focus on two out of three things. You can either be industry focused, geography focused, or stage focused. And so we focus on stage and geography and not industry. And so, and especially again, when you get into some of the regions that we're in, there's not enough depth in just one industry. We could say we were only gonna do automotive or we're only gonna do energy. There wouldn't be enough ideas that were that fit our profile of this kind of disruptive, never been done, big impact. And so we have investments across health sciences in the genomics area. We have investments in advanced materials, have investments in energy, have investments in uh, robotics, as I mentioned. We have some investments in photonics, uh, semiconductor. And so it's just a uh, unpredictable somewhat <laughs> what idea is going to we're going to be introduced to next that's going to kind of really uh, pique our interest in terms of hey this is this could really be something right um, and it could really change an industry and so like I said like a lot of funds you know they might do a deal a month on average um, we're going to do one or two new deals a year um, we're going to support the companies we're in. So we might do more rounds of funding than that because there's follow on rounds, et cetera. But in terms of new investments, you know, it's going to be, it's average basically two a year for the last 12 years. Um, and that's even with, uh, Europe in, included in the, in the kind of sourcing. So maybe two and a half now with Europe, maybe, you know, three, but it's not going to be more than that. So, because of that, and this is being opportunistic across all industries. So it's, it's just, uh, these are these kind of needles in a haystack um, that uh, we stumble across or people you know bring to us that pique our interest, that have significant impact, a unique approach at the right stage, kind of early where we can help kind of get it to that next uh, prototype or uh, market introduction stage. And so because of that, we really can't focus on one industry, I guess is the main point. We're just, we kind of learn as we go and we, we do a lot of diligence on these ideas, um, predominantly with the potential customers. So we have an extensive network with the corporate community. And so they know the technology because they see a lot more than we do. And so when we bring them something that's truly off the curve, they're like, hey, that, if that would work, that would really be impactful. We don't think it'll work. But, uh, you know, we're open to learning more um, and they know the market opportunity. Um, and then we do a lot of the diligence around business models and uh, market entry strategy. And again, helping build the, the team uh, to really be able to execute on the opportunity and particularly by adding uh, a business person or two that can really translate the technology into, you know, a customer um presentation, what's the value add, what's the return on investment kind of thing from their side of the table. Right. Well, that's got to be a little bit exciting, right? Keep you all on your toes with all these opportunities and whatnot from different sectors and industries. I mean, I would imagine you probably come up with something new kind of every year that is kind of like, wow, that's that's really interesting. I would have wouldn't have thought of that. Yeah. I mean, every, you know, yeah, if we went through the whole portfolio, uh, it's just really fascinating to me 
the ideas uh, that we get a chance to support and the impact that several of them are already having. We have a company in hydrogen. It's very unique. Came out of Sandia, Sandia National Lab. Hydrogen is a very, uh, uh, it's an industry that's getting a lot of attention from an ESG standpoint on reducing carbon footprint. And uh, they're becoming uh, very well known internationally, uh, making an impact. Uh, both, of course, they're based here in New Mexico, so impact in New Mexico, but really internationally, ultimately. Uh, and that's really true of all of our companies. All of our companies almost immediately uh, have an international footprint in terms of customer traction, in terms of uh, investment interest, um, because all of them, again, have a chance to disrupt the industries that they're um, focused on. And so that's really an international opportunity almost always. Yeah. And what's kind of the time life cycle, if you will, because you mentioned uh, kind of taking it through about maybe two, two and a half, three investments a year now, potentially with Europe on that front. How long is that process where you're kind of going through and you're kind of analyzing the company, looking at the founders and, and seeing if this is something that you want to indeed invest in? So the investment process, I mean, one of the good things to some extent uh, with the regions that we're in is we really have no one doing this sort of founding stage, hard tech investing. So we can take our time and build a relationship with the founders, come to a common uh, understanding of what is the market opportunity? What's the best way to approach it? What's the best use of funds? How much money is needed to get to the critical milestones? And so we almost, I'm not sure we've ever had a competitive term sheet, maybe once or twice. So almost always, it's just sort of a negotiated term sheet where we build a relationship with the founders and they have trust in us and we have trust in them. And, and we decide to uh, work together towards, uh, you know, change in the world, if you will, uh, uh, in whatever world that we're focused on. And, uh, and so I would say an average, it's probably somewhere between three to six months. It can be three months if it's kind of very organized and they know what they're doing if we don't have to build a syndicate, sometimes that takes longer if you're trying to raise, if, if you feel like the right number is more than $2 million to get to the key milestones, we might have to recruit some other investors to join us. So that could take a little bit longer. So typically not more than six months, uh, typically not less than three months. Okay. Okay. So that's, that's about, that's about kind of aligned with what I was thinking in my head on that front. Dave, I'd love to know as well, when you, when you're dealing with all this impact and this tech, that's going to have like, well, it's going to be much more kind of significant than somebody creating a, a SaaS product potentially, you know what I mean? But what is that kind of outlook in terms of what you see and what that company sees? You mentioned a lot with the hydrogen uh, and energy transition, right? We're seeing lots of that and it's going to be tremendously impactful in the future, especially as we kind of go more green. Right. What's your, what's your time horizon on it? So I know I just asked about the investment, but then when you're looking at the solution and when that's really going to get impactful, is it 10 years, 20 years, 30? Well, I mean, ultimately, you know, it is decades because if you're changing the industry, you're, you're going to be building market share over time as you get more and more customer adoption. Initially, it's probably more in the, uh, say, five to six year time frame in terms of because we're getting involved so early at the first prototype stage, at the first proof of concept stage, raising the next round, doing the next generation. And even when you get it working and it's ready for commercial adoption, there's still a qualification and testing process that can take up to 12 months. And then you also have to be able to scale the technology. So it's not just that you can pr produce, you know, uh, one that works. You got to produce thousands that works or 10,000 that work. You know, if you're really going to change an industry, you got to be able to produce at a volume that's relevant to the size of the industry. 
And so getting to those volumes is more, I would say, seven to eight years, um, maybe even a little bit longer. Um, and so, you know, the exit horizon is a lot longer, uh, probably than for a SaaS type of product or software type of product. What I'm also seeing consistently when I first got into the venture business back in the 90s, you did have corporations more willing to buy technology um, relatively early uh, and then want to have a kind of proprietary edge, if you will, bring it in-house, finish it, incorporate it into their product portfolio. I don't see that really happening anymore. Almost always now the corporations have learned over time, I think, that doing that's not as easy as they think, and they've learned to just kind of keep it separate and support the founding team. And that's why they all have these venture groups so they can support them without owning them. Um, and so they're, and, and also, as I mentioned earlier, they've reduced their internal resources for kind of product development and, and research and development. So what I'm generally seeing is if you're going to be, so, I mean, you end up generally, this has always been true. You kind of have two paths to liquidity. One is a, a an acquisition by a larger company or one might be a, a, a public offering of the company. And what I'm seeing now, more than almost across the whole portfolio, regardless of industry, regardless of how disruptive the technology is, is corporations don't want to buy companies until they're what I'll call accretive, um, which means the technology risk is gone, revenues are ramping, customer the company is profitable. So they're not, if you will, um, they're not having to um, absorb a negative uh, burn rate. Uh, they want to absorb a profitable organization that's already in the market, that's already scaled to a certain level, already has customers. Technology risk is largely gone. Scaling risk is gone. And now, if they do want to own it, they can just uh, essentially keep it separate, uh, but support it with more resources and support it with their network of customers. Um, so, so what that means from a practical standpoint as an investor means that the exit horizons are much longer, whether you're going to have to go public, to, you know, because to go public, you got to be at probably hundred million in revenues or more, um, or to even be acquired today, you got to be in that range, 50, maybe, um, you know, we're, we're just not seeing these acquisitions occur until there's a certain level of scaling, a certain level of profitability. Yeah. And how do you think that kind of affects that early stage company and that startup who's kind of building its way up on that front? Do you think that by doing it in this newer model that's kind of evolved is going to be much more effective than it has been in the past? Or do you think that it's obviously kind of yet to be determined? Or where do your kind of thoughts lie within that kind of new evolution that we've seen uh, over the course of, of your professional experience? Well, I do think, you know, one of the benefits is the technology is more likely to actually get into the market. I mean, I think what you saw in a lot of cases is corporations would buy these technologies and then they would just sort of disappear within the corporation because there'd be competitive forces about not invented here. And so some people could see the strategic value, but then it got to execution phase. So a lot of times it just ran into what were the corporate priorities and, you know, since it's early and it's revenue or even pre-revenue, it would sort of lose out to other um, investments internally over time that really were closer to market or gener revenue generating. And so 
you saw a lot of technologies get acquired that never got to market. Um, I see that a lot with the universities. They'll license out, or even the national labs, they'll license these technologies out, and they just sort of disappear and never really get into a product, never really get into a market uh, um, in, in any meaningful way. So I do think uh, in these cases where they're independent, where they can stay independent, where they can really develop a technology and take it to market, and maybe even get acquired, but still stay somewhat independent. Um, certainly if they go public and they're a standalone a corporation, I think the impact of these technologies can, um, then to your point, have a 20, 30, 50 year uh, evolution uh, versus disappearing into sort of a bigger corporation and, and, and maybe getting lost uh, in, with other priorities. Right. Yeah. You don't want to see some of these technologies go to waste, right? I mean, you want to see some of them actually get implemented and, and start working on these products. So, um, to, yeah, I think that part is going to be a kind of essential as we move forward with it as well. And And Dave, obviously, you know, my show is a lot on impact, right? Like from a perspective, it's going to change society for good, if you will. Obviously, that can be subjective, but um, that's kind of uh, the the messaging on my show on that front. So we've talked a little bit about some of the sectors and investments that you got, but I'd love to hear more about maybe some of the, the impactful stuff. For example, the company doing the fantastic work within hydrogen and the energy kind of transition there. So, I mean, I would imagine in deep tech, especially if they're stemming a lot from, from universities and people of that nature, you probably see a lot of these really cool technologies that could potentially like really change the world and society for better. Well, and, and the truth is, you know, every one of these companies, I mean, I used to hear people talk about double bottom line, triple bottom line or whatever in terms of social good plus return. Um, you're going to have a big impact if you have a successful company, right? So um, if you start out focused on the social return and you don't focus on creating a successful company, I've seen a lot of, uh, interesting investments that never really had an impact because they never became a big successful company. If you take our portfolio, every single company, if it's successful, is going to have a huge impact and a huge positive social impact. Um, we've got a fusion company, actually, that's uh, pretty interesting. You know, it's like people have been talking about fusion for a long time. So who knows? But, you know, clearly, if we are able to successfully develop fusion as a uh, viable source of uh, power, that's huge, right? That's like an endless supply of energy, uh, very inexpensively, no uh, hazardous waste uh, that you see with the traditional nuclear power. Um, so that's huge. We have an electric motor company that's got a whole new design on an electric motor. It's a third the weight, a third size, 10% more efficient. 50% of global electricity is consumed by electric motors. And that's only going up as we go to electric vehicles and electric planes, electric trains. So, and this is 10% more efficient um, and less weight, less materials. I mean, so it has a huge impact, not only on energy consumption, but on materials uh, that are used to create these electric motors on the cost of even transporting these motors to the end customers uh, when they're a third the weight. So it has a huge impact um, over time. So, you know, we could, I could, uh, if we had enough time, I could go through the whole portfolio, but uh, every one of them, I mean, that's what's fun about what, what I'm doing, I think, is that every one of these companies, uh, we have several in the healthcare space. We have a company now that's a uh, in this whole RNA space, but it's a new area of RNA called circular RNA. It's produced by the brain. 
and you can, uh, by identifying these biomarkers, um, I don't know if you're familiar at all with like, I mean, depression is a big problem, right? Worldwide, um, all types of depression. And right now the state of the art is essentially trial and error. Um, you answer a bunch of questions and you're diagnosed and then they prescribe medication and they say, and you're supposed to come back in a month or a week or two months and they adjust the medication based on how well, you know, uh, of an inf- impact it's having on you. With this technology, it's very scientific. They can tell from these biomarkers what type of depression you have and what types of medications will be most effective at treating it um, based, on, based on your own genomic uh, markers. And so based on, I mean, this is in this whole personalized medicine area, right? <clears throat> so the impact of that as it goes to market is humongous. It's, I mean, it's, depression's a global problem and COVID only made it worse. Um, and, and yet the state of the art is very subjective. And so to be able to transition it to a, a, a very objective scientific uh, approach to diagnosis and treatment, and even ultimately creating medications uh, that are better and more effective, uh, the impact of technology could be very hugely significant. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I mean, even just the top of my head, when I kind of think of that chain reaction, I mean, if you can go through and have much more effective methods of treatment for depression, right, you might reduce, um, you know, suicide rates, for example, right? You might reduce uh, here in here in the US, we have the issue with, you know, prescription drugs. Maybe you reduce that, right? Because people take that when they're, so that's, that's incredibly impactful. And really, so it, it just will diagnose the exact kind of depression that you have and then have the recommendations for what type of medication or anything you might need to take just based on the the biomarkers that's set up. Yeah, no, it's really fast. No quizzes involved or anything. It's uh, <laughs> right here in New Mexico of all places. Um, so, um, but the, the vetters are, you know, global expert in this area and one of the pioneers in this space. So uh, we're really fortunate to have been introduced to him and the uh, company is, uh, I think, going to be a really exciting company in the future. I want to take a quick pause to highlight a few more of the companies Cottonwood VC is invested in and the importance of how these deep tech companies are creating impactful solutions that can change the world in a positive manner. Cottonwood VC right now is involved in supporting companies that are fighting five of the UN's sustainable development goals, including good health and well-being, affordable clean energy, industry innovation and infrastructure, sustainable cities and developments, and finally, climate action. This includes companies like Infinitum Electric, which is a disruptive electric motor vehicle company that has reinvented the electric motor. It's half the size and weight of a traditional motor, 60% less copper, less noise, and 30% more efficient. Sound Energy is a sustainable cooling technology, and it's developed a system based on thermoacoustic cooling using waste heat without the hazardous gases used in compressor coolers. And another one to keep your eye on is Sencure, and they create chips that measure electrophysiological parameters on the human body in innovative ways, improving medical outcomes while reducing health care costs. And of course, biotech earlier localized in low cost hydrogen. Biotech technology allows highly efficient zero carbon hydrogen production with carbon capture using biomethane from a food waste and flexible ceramics. Flex Ceramics is the company and their revolution. They provided a revolutionary technology that allows the creation of products that have the unique and novel characteristics of being pure ceramic and flexible. And that includes being applied to 
things like electronics, batteries, infiltration. Those are just some of the companies that Cottonwood BC is invested in that are making a difference, innovating, disrupting industries and changing the world in a more positive manner. So now let's jump back into the episode and learn more from Dave in Cottonwood, BC. Dave, I'd, I'd love to because I think what, what you know, and a big reason why I wanted to have you on the show is because you are a, a little bit more uh, unique in that space of the deep tech and some of these more long term solutions and whatnot and things that are really, really getting after it and, and, and a bit of a challenge on that front. So I'd love for you to to maybe share some other ways that people can kind of learn more about kind of the deep tech space and or, or be, you know, shout out to some companies or, or something that you think people should be following and things of that nature as well, because I know it's an area of interest for a lot of people, but I do think it's kind of, uh, you know, another level of kind of studying that you need to do to really kind of fully understand the space and what these people are trying to get after and solve for. So any recommendations for, for people out there listening that would want to learn more? Well, you can always go to our website and um, you'll see several companies that I haven't mentioned that I think are pretty interesting. I mean, you know, these these types of companies, like I said, they don't really uh, come out of weekend boot camps. These are companies that come out of the university setting or, or national lab settings um, corporate settings, because a lot of times, you know, inside a corporation, there is a lot of innovation. Um, and in many cases, it leaves um, to start a company. So you have because, again, the when they when there's a battle for resources internal to these corporations, they don't necessarily get the attention that they think they should get. And so quite often they're able to license the technology out, start a company um, based on uh, research that was originally supported by the company. And so. Um, these ideas come from any number of places. Um, I'm trying to think to your point in terms of how to learn about it or how to find more ideas like this, but it's really just a matter of, uh, I mean, we spend time in this region meeting with the heads of tech transfer at pretty much every university in the region and also the national labs. We do the same thing in Europe, meeting with a number of the research universities in the Netherlands and Germany and France and Belgium as well as there's several centers of excellence. So it's, um, it's something that uh, is a little bit unpredictable, um, but by being in the market and, and uh, we've built a brand, of course, in terms of in the regions that we're focused on. So people know Cottonwood, they know we make these kind of investments. So quite often they find us, uh, in some cases we find them. Um, or get introduced to them through a mutual relationship, something like that. Yeah. Any any uh, plans for expansion uh, in the future, either near or long term out in terms of different regions that you want to focus on? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I held, we held a conference back in uh, May called Crossing the Cactus. And the idea is kind of a metaphor for the fact that you have crossing the chasm. Most many people that are involved in the venture or startup community are familiar with the term crossing the chasm. And Crossing the Chasm, Jeffrey Moore wrote that book. He actually came and spoke at our event. Um, but it's more about how do you go from a first customer to a mass market? And, you know, what we focused on with Crossing the Cactus is what I call the chasm before the chasm. How do you get the idea to a first product? Um, then you can worry about crossing the chasm. So how do you find these ideas? How do you support them? Um, and again, especially when the cactus analogy was also an analogy for when you're not in Silicon Valley or you're not in Boston, when you're in areas of the country or areas of the world that are not blessed with billions of dollars of venture capital, how do you, even if you find these ideas, how do you support them in a way that they can be successful and create jobs in your region from an economic development standpoint 
if you're the governor of Nebraska, um, you want to see jobs created in Nebraska based on the innovation that's occurring at the University of Nebraska, or if you're University of New Mexico, of course, here, same thing. And so people want to identify these ideas and they want to create jobs from them, but they don't often know how to do it. And so we talked uh, quite a bit at the conference. We had um, corporate investors that see companies from Silicon Valley, but they also make investments in companies in New Mexico or Iowa, contrasting kind of the approaches uh, that work. Um, and one of the benefits when you're out of these in these out-of-market regions, if you, as you do build management teams, you can sustain those teams a little more easily because there's not a you know a, um, a an opportunity even to jump to the next hot deal because there's not that many hot deals like there might be in California, right? So you can really build teams, you can really execute on a plan uh, as you raise capital. You can be uh, a little bit more. Uh, you don't have to just spend it quickly to grow quickly. You can be I think a little bit more thoughtful and strategic about how you spend the money you raise. So all of that I think uh, helps in terms of expanding. You know, I think the need for what we're doing is international, really. There's so many areas of the world that have disruptive ideas. Uh, pretty much every country, every state has these research uh, universities and research uh, centers of excellence. And they do create these disruptive ideas, but they often go undiscovered or they often go licensed to a big corporation and they disappear. Um, and so I think there is the opportunity to expand to some other regions. Uh, we get approached periodically to consider some other regions. And um, so I think it's a possibility. It's not at the top of my list, but I'm open to it with the right partners and the right capital support. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you made a lot of great points, actually, about some of the pros of, you know, focusing on these regions that don't have all that money flowing through. Right. And, and the building team is, to me, sounds like a huge pro for you guys, because that's what you guys focus on is kind of that business, get that business person or two in there, provide that operational support and kind of give that long term strategic outlook from a business setting. Yeah. Dave, before I let you go here, I would love to, to ask if you think we missed anything or anything else that you'd like to touch on uh, in terms of uh, kind of enlightening the audience with it. Well, you know, the thing I would just follow up on what I was talking about this crossing the cactus um you know what i find and what i found because i did this in the southeast and i did you know i'm doing it here in the southwest and, I, and we're doing it in northern europe and there's always when you start a fund it's kind of like throwing a party you can send out a lot of invitations but you don't really know who's going to show up until the night of the party and either everybody shows up or nobody shows up uh it's a little bit the same way when you start a fund i mean you you can have a focus and you can have a thought about the kinds of ideas that you might find and and, and whether or not you can find enough good ideas to support uh, investment thesis and what i have found as i mentioned is um all three of these regions we've been able to find these really disruptive ideas and they're ideas that uh, i would say most of our companies might not even exist if it wasn't for us being here and uh, partnering with them and providing the initial capital to get them started. And so, you know, I think in terms of any state uh, or any country, putting some thought in, I mean, there's a tendency to just say, we'll just do what Silicon Valley does. Well, you're not Silicon Valley, so you don't have billions of dollars. Uh, there's another propensity to think, well, these the best ideas get found. And so we don't really need to, need to do anything. The market will take care of it. That doesn't happen either. Or even if it does happen and they do get found, if you don't have the resources in your state or in your country to keep those ideas in your country, 
they get licensed out to other startups or to other companies that are not based in your region or not based in your state. And so to keep these ideas in market, which I think uh, is not critical from a company's success standpoint, company, you know, it's kind of like water, it'll seek its own level. So the company will do what it needs to to be successful. If it needs to move out of region to find the resources it needs, it'll do that. But if you're in the economic development side of it, or even as the founders, I think most founders would like to be able to stay, uh, not have to pick up and move, right? Um, but it really takes a, a complete ecosystem and a thoughtful ecosystem that includes capital and proximity to these ideas, the ability to then recruit the management to build these companies, et cetera. And so I guess if I had a, if I had a final thought, it's no matter where you are, these ideas exist. And the question is, what can you do to identify and support these ideas and help create these successful companies? Love it. Fantastic. We need more of that in the world, especially as we continue to innovate. And you know what? Quite frankly, especially because we just continue to learn. We got so much more information in today's world than we've ever had before. And and I think uh, it's going to enable us to kind of create more of these disruptive technologies to kind of change the ways we've done things in the past, only make them better in the future. So, Dave, uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and kind of uh, doing your part and allowing people to learn a little bit more about it. Like that question I asked you showing up here and, and having this conversation with me is one way to do so. So I really much uh, appreciate your time. Very good. I enjoyed it very much. Awesome. And again, everybody listening, as he mentioned, you can definitely go over to the Cottonwood VC website. That's cottonwood.vc. Cottonwood spelt as you would expect, C-O-T-T-O-N-W-O-O-D dot V-C. You got a lot of information. You can learn more about some of their investments, industries in general, and what uh, things that they do and the impact that they make as well. And then you could also follow them on LinkedIn at the Cottonwood Technology Fund as well to get some better information on that front. But that is going to wrap up this edition of the Talking to Solutions a podcast with the founder and managing director of Cottonwood VC, Dave Blivin here, joining us on today's show. So as always, if you enjoyed the episode, drop a review, subscribe, and we'll get you more great content from founders and investors that are impacting the world in a positive way. And until the next time, until next week, I will talk to you later and hope you all have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Talking Solutions podcast. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode and check out all of our guests on our website at cheshtech.com. That's C-H-E-S-H-T-E-C-H.com to learn more as we continue our mission of supporting impact-driven founders. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Talking Solutions Podcast and subscribe to our YouTube channel, Talking Solutions. If you liked this episode, I'd really appreciate a review and a recommendation to a friend as we focus on highlighting these great founders and individuals providing solutions to societal problems and bringing optimism into the world.